Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 432 of the podcast. It's Carrie Newhoff here, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Really excited to have Jimena Vangochea with us today. And she has worked at LinkedIn, Twitter, and Pinterest. And we are going into a really fascinating place because if you've ever wondered, like, how do I serve people better? How come people aren't buying my product? Why aren't more people attending? Maybe you got to figure out listening. And the way she listens, don't, don't draw any conclusions ahead of time when I'm like, listening, okay, yeah, listen better. You got to hear this. This is fascinating. This will, t- this will help you understand why LinkedIn, Twitter, Pinterest, why they have become such globally dominant brands. And uh, yeah, there's clues all over this episode. Uh, This episode is brought to you by Leader. You can get their easy-to-use people development software and their free one-on-one meeting guide by going to leader.com. That's leader without the second E, -E L-E-A-D-R.com. Receive 25% off your first year when you use the promo code CARRY. And go to barnacities.com slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, to get Barna's latest research and tools to help you start connecting with the people in your community. Thank you to our partners who bring this to you free. Thank you for your ratings and reviews. Hey, Dave, uh, Dave Giroux, actually, I saw your review recently. And just thank you so much. Dave said, as a young leader, I was recommended the podcast by a mentor. I've been listening now for almost a year and a half. What I find so helpful is that while I've had my fair share of uh, theological training, while I can unpack a text of scripture just fine, and while I can provide a helpful spiritual care, the organizational leadership aspect of a pastor was a real growth area. Dave, that's why I am doing what I'm doing now. I didn't have any training on that, and I went to law school, have a degree in history, and went to seminary. Yep, nobody prepped me for this stuff. So the pot, and I went to good schools too. Okay. So I'm not blaming them. It's just like, it's not what they do. Uh, Dave continues, this podcast has stepped into this space as a result, not to be too dramatic. I have seen more than ever the critical relationship between my craft and character, my public and private life as a husband, dad, and overall human being. The podcast is one of a kind in that regard. It brings you the best guests on leadership and generously shares with us insights and conversations that are equally Uh, formative as they are fascinating. I guess you could say I'm a fan, all of that. Keep up the great work team. There is a whole team behind this. Dave, thanks for your rating and review. Thank you to the constant encouragement. Really got a beautiful letter from um, James Wentworth in Germany talking about the leadership podcast as well. Handwritten. uh, That's Keeper. Thank you so much, James. Really appreciate it. You guys really are the best. Uh, We are privileged to be able to serve you, to be with you. And uh, yeah, we just continue to bring you a diversity of guests that uh, I think could really help with what you and I are trying to crack, which is quite the code. Let me tell you about Jimena. Jimena Vangochea has been a user researcher at Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. She has been published in the Washington Post, Newsweek, Huffington Post. She's the author of the new book, Listen Like You Mean It, which is actually the most comprehensive and best book on listening I have ever read. If you are a talker like I am, um, probably good to read it. (laughs) She is a contributor at Fast Company and The Muse and writes Letters from Hymena, uh, a newsletter on tech, culture, career, and creativity. And she's best known for her project, The Life Audit. And uh, wow, she's a fascinating person. And if you think, no, I I understand listening, uh, well, listen to this interview. It's really, really good. And I have never listened at the level that she describes. So I think it's going to be super helpful. At the end, in the What I'm Thinking About segment, I'm going to talk about some things I've learned about listening. Uh, So this is a bit of a masterclass in this. If you lead a team, you probably feel the tension between getting the job done and developing your people each day, right? Who has time for that? It's not easy, but that's one of our responsibilities as leaders. And people want to be led, not just managed. So how do we develop leaders at every level? with a consistent process and framework. This is what inspired Leader, the first people development software to help you grow and engage every single person on your team. You can never miss a note in a meeting, set clear goals for you and your team, and give and receive feedback, uh, and a whole lot more through Leader. 
So you can get Leader's easy-to-use people development software and their free one-on-one meeting guide by going to leader.com. That's L-E-A-D-R.com and receive 25% off your first year when you use the promo code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y. Also, what's happening in your city? Barna and Glue are trying to help you crack the code on that. Last year, Barna and Glue launched an effort to equip the church through the State of the Church Research and Toolkit. Over 25,000 churches benefited. This year, Barna and Glue are launching Barna Cities. It's a year-long journey focused specifically on what makes each city unique. With Barna Cities, you get access to local research. You also get full membership to Barna Access Plus with on-demand reports, insights, and tools. You'll get Glue Connect, cooperative always-on ads that run across your city, and you get access to Click to Connect, a four-part course I designed for Barna Cities. And you can go to barnacities.com slash carry to sign up today. That's barnacities.com forward slash carry and sign up today. You will get so much and you'll understand your city and the nation a whole lot better. Well, without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Jimena Vengochea. Jimena, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you've done an awful lot with your life. One of those really eclectic biographies, which I always find, find uh, you know interesting. So you've been at LinkedIn, Pinterest, and Twitter. Not a whole lot of people can claim that. What were some top lessons you learned working at these startups so far? I think the big thing for me working in those environments was realizing just how very much relationships matter. I think particularly in the beginning of your career, there's a sort of focus on efficiency and getting things done. And it can feel like the way to do that is by going it alone, you know, kind of taking control. And even frankly, as a new leader, it can sometimes feel like that. Like, I have to do this myself in order for it to get done. But really, those experiences have just taught me that you can't go it alone. (laughs) You need other people in order to see your vision through. Um, and, And that really requires building relationships because that's what's going to allow you to make that impact, to get the resources you're looking for, to influence the change that you're hoping to see, to drive the strategy in a certain direction. Um, you need you need to build those relationships so that people believe in that vision and, and want to join you in it. Well, it's interesting because one of the patterns in Silicon Valley, and this is almost a rule with some investors, like I think it's a Reed Hoffman rule, it may be a Paul Graham rule, But like you don't just start something solo, you have to find a co-founder. And that whole idea of partnership is built right in. Um, Any thoughts on that, like co-founding and teams? Because you have a lot of young entrepreneurs listening. And outside of Silicon Valley, a lot of stuff's a solo show, right? Like I've probably fallen into that trap before where I build a team, but I don't found things together. Anything more on the whole co-founder, partner idea I think part of that, particularly in Silicon Valley, is there's a really strong desire to have someone who's exclusively focused on the technical aspect and then someone who can bring in the business side of things. And it's somewhat unusual to get someone who is, frankly, skilled at and passionate about both of those things. So I think that's part of it. But also, I mean, of course, it helps to have another person to toss ideas around with, to brainstorm with. I think particularly when you're thinking about Um, you know, building new products, experiences that might not exist. Some of those early ideas come from things that one individual is really excited about. And just having Mm. one other voice say like, hey, yeah, I think that might be a niche problem. (laughs) Or I think that (laughs) might not be applicable to, you know, most of most Americans having another voice to expand the view a little bit, I think can be really, really helpful. So one of your roles has been user researcher. So I think a lot of us, you know, we've heard of user interface, et cetera. What what is a user researcher? Yes. So a user researcher, I think of it as one of the most people-centric jobs in tech because my job is really to understand people. Um, So Mm. we call them users when they're using the platform in some way, but it could also be non-users, everyday people who, you know, might somewhat someday want to use a particular app or website. And really, it's about understanding people's routines, their habits, their needs, their motivations, their perceptions, 
um, of our brand, of maybe a competitor's brand, of our mm-hmm. suite of products, competitor's suite of products. And, and it's all about understanding the psychology of people and what makes them tick in order to build something that really matters <laughs> and that will really be used and that is meeting a need, like a real one, not what I was talking about earlier, where it's right. kind of a neat idea, but there's no there's no core need that's being met there. So this is a little bit different if I'm understanding right. And you have a great book, by the way. But if I understand correctly, this is more than, you know, I bought a T-shirt and now it's like, how would you rate our company? Or it's not like that five-star, three-star, two-star, any other feedback, not like you get from the airlines. Because you get a lot of leaders who are saying, well, I do surveys, right? So I send surveys out to my congregation, to my readers, to my clients, to my customers. And I talk to them all the time. Is this different than that? And how so, if it is? So surveys are certainly part of what a user researcher might do. It's one of the many tools they might use. My specialty is more on the qualitative side where we're really having one-on-one conversations or we're having a workshop, a group conversation. Um, I might run a diary study and ask someone to track their, let's say, meal planning habits over the course of a month and then do a deep dive with them to really understand those routines. So it's, it's not strictly... And 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 again, my specialty is more on the co- the conversational side of things. But the key really is that you know I think surveys sometimes are used at the end. It's like I've given you this experience. Now tell me what you thought. User research can be used at the end to evaluate an experience, which is what those surveys do. But they can it can also be used at the very beginning. So before you even know that you want to create merch, <laughs> you know, to design a T-shirt. You might conduct research to find out how do people decide what their personal style is and what is their connection with particular brands? Like, how is their identity reflected in what they wear? That's a super different set of questions than did the shirt fit? Did you like it? Was the cut good? Right. And it's going to inform upfront the kind of work, the kind of products you pursue and put out in the world. Okay, so what you what you are suggesting is just so different than a lot of the entrepreneurs that I know because they they have this business idea, they have this web service they want to provide, they have a restaurant they want to build and they have the menu in their head or they're launching a church and they got the idea of exactly how the church should be. And so they're out there in the world, uh, but what you're saying is no, you should listen before you launch. Is it more like that? Like you got to figure out what the market needs. Can you explain more about that? Because I think that's a very different paradigm that than a lot of visionaries would normally stumble into on their own. Yeah, so the beauty of user research is that it can be used at any phase of the process. So it can be used early, it can be used in the middle, it can be used to evaluate or validate the idea at the end. But where I think it has the most power is at the beginning, before you get mm. started. So it's before you hire a software development team to go build out your app, or it's before you, you know, build out this big team to bring your vision into fruition, it's great to have an initial vision. Like, absolutely, right? That's the seed, but that's just the Mm. beginning. And so you have to be able to spend some time up front to figure out, you know, are you going to be able to be growing that seed in the right space is is that is there an environment that's going to be conducive to this meaning are there people who need what you want to offer and not want it but like really need it and if so mm. how does it fit into their worlds and what does it compete with in their worlds right if you think about our day to day i think we all know time is a super scarce <laughs> resource. So whatever it is you're introducing into the world is going to take up someone's time. That's not a bad thing, but you're competing with all of the other things they could be doing with their time at any given moment. And so you really need to make sure that you know that and you know, you know, what you're up against. And and in particular, I think it can be easy to say, well, you know, I'm going to launch the next, let's say Facebook. So my competitor is Facebook. Mm. Well, okay. Yes, maybe. But who else is your competitor? Well, it's TikTok, it's Twitter, it's LinkedIn, it's email, uh, it's work, it's Slack, right? There's so many other, it's hobbies. Um, There's so many other elements. And so really, I think the power of bringing user research in up front is that you're getting a better picture of 
not just what you're up against, but where you fit in. Where do you fit into someone's life? Do you think, uh, and I mean, this this is probably not an easily answerable question, but you know, there is a stat that 70% of all businesses fail in the first few years, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think some of that might in some way be related to a lack of listening, this big, bold idea that nobody wants? Yes, I do. I think that, um, again, kind of going back to what I was mentioning earlier in terms of building relationships, there are these, there are these actions that we take as we're building out products or companies, um, and and they feel like the most important ones, right? It's like, well, I gotta, I'm gonna design my brand. I'm gonna get that website up. I'm gonna, you know, yeah. claim the domain, right? Um, but and and those are things that we can do fairly efficiently, fairly quickly, independently. But again, we actually have to slow down <laughs> and talk mm. to people and listen to them and get a sense of what the real opportunity is, not the, you know everything's roses opportunity in our head, which any entrepreneur, any small business owner needs that. And that is so important because that is the drive, right? For you to build this thing and put it out in the world. And that's the mm-hmm. the motivation that's going to keep you motivated when things get hard. So it's not a knock on that. It's just to say that that's the start. And if you can invest more in broadening that view, it's better for you to find out that there may be stumbling blocks um, up front rather than invest time, energy, money, and then realize, oh, nobody wants, like nobody's interested in our fusion menu option that I thought was really cool, but it turns out people don't want to eat that, right? You know, so mm-hmm. I think it's it's about doing that investigation up front to inform your path forward. Uh, that's really good to know. Do, uh, can you give me an example of, from your time at Twitter, Pinterest, and LinkedIn, where user feedback either shaped the initial product when it was launched or has shaped multiple iterations. Because I think we've all seen as users of those that like Pinterest today is not Pinterest of five years ago. LinkedIn today has totally morphed. Twitter, you know, famously said 140 characters. Now they're not 140 characters anymore. They're they're pivoting all the time. So can you give us some real life examples of how user... um, uh, research has shaped the products that we use? Yeah, sure. And I think even the examples you've given are, are perfect examples of when a researcher was probably involved. So that okay. shift from 140 characters to more, they definitely put that in front of users to get a sense of, you know, what they thought and how they might what are use your the pain points? differently. Yeah, exactly. Um, but one, one concrete example I can give, um, you know, you were mentioning how Pinterest, for instance, has evolved Um, And I worked on an initiative many years ago to look at meal planning. So I mentioned this a little bit earlier where I was trying to understand how do people meal plan? How do they cook? What are their cooking routines? And at the time, so if you're on Pinterest today, you know that when you look at a recipe, you can rate a recipe, give it five stars, Mm -hmm. you can give it two stars. You can leave a comment and say, um, you know, I really love this this cookie recipe, but I doubled the sugar because I have a really strong sweet tooth and I thought it needed it, right? So, you know, you get this sort of community chiming in and and weighing in and saying, oh, don't use olive oil, use this, whatever it may be. Several years ago, that did not exist. So pins that had recipes were just that. They had recipes. Mm -hmm. There wasn't that much information. And in fact, you had to kind of scroll through often food bloggers, right, where they're kind of saying, like, it's a Saturday morning, and I was really inspired, and I wanted to bake brunch, and so, you know, da-da-da-da, story, 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 and then there's the recipe buried at the end. So all of those things have since changed, where now you've got ratings, you've got reviews, you've got the recipe pulled out much clearer, you can filter by ingredient lists, you can filter by, um, you know, how much time does a recipe take to cook, Um, And that was the result of this research where we knew that there was an opportunity to improve the experience in this space for anyone who came to Pinterest with an interest in cooking or baking. Um, But the research that we conducted helped inform what the set of changes should be and how they should be prioritized, how how they should be sequenced, et cetera. And in terms of the process and the sort of behind the scenes that, you know, got us from point A to point B, it basically involved me talking to a lot of people and going mm. into their kitchens 
Um, and I like scheduled literally going to their houses, literally going to their, houses. Yeah. Going to their houses. Yeah. So, yeah. So I did a, a diary study where I had them track, you know, for two weeks, anytime you're thinking about meal planning, like answer these questions or take a photo of, you know, the recipe so that I could get a sense of how are people navigating their kitchens? What kind of apps are they using? I'm interested in Pinterest, but I'm also interested in all recipes and food network and the back of the pasta box, whatever you use, right? You're your great grandmother's recipe card. I'm I'm here for it all, right? Because I just want to understand the bigger picture. And then from that, I had these deeper dive one-on-one conversations where I went to people's kitchens and we scheduled time together where I could ask them questions. And then I also observed them in the kitchen. And so I could see exactly how they were making recipes um, and how they were cooking and what else was going on in their world. Because it's not enough to just you know, ask someone, oh yeah, what is cooking like for you? You're going to get some version of the answer. But if I'm there in your kitchen and I see your six-year-old running around in the background or your eight-year-old wants to help you cut, you know, the mushrooms and your spouse Mm. just got home in the middle of of your cooking and now you're going to hand off, like that's that tells me so much more about what you need in that moment, not what you want, but what you need in that moment and that is what helps, um, you know, that those insights are really what help create a better experience. When you say it out loud, it just makes so much more sense. Like it makes us so much sense. And yet I think 99% of people never do that, right? Like we want this to be read in the kitchen, but I will never go to a kitchen. We want this to reach a certain group, but I'll never talk to that group. How, yeah, I guess. I guess my question is, how does what you're observing, like grandma's recipe, the six-year-old, the dull knife, impact Pinterest as an app? Do you know what I mean? Like, where is the cause and effect? So how do you how do you then modify your product so that it helps the woman with three toddlers running around in a dull kitchen knife and grandma's recipe stuck to the cupboard? And while she's trying to listen to Alexa, give her the recipe list one more time, the ingredient list one more time. How, how does that impact your app? Yeah. So, you know, the outcome of studies like this is that you walk away with a set of insights or learnings where you say, here's what I've learned. These are the patterns that I'm seeing. These are the needs that I'm seeing people have. Um, This is the context of their world. And then you also provide recommendations. So you say, you know, based on what I know about our set of features um, and where our special, you know, our special sauce is, what we're good at as a company, what our mission is as a company, Mm. Um, here are the, you know, top five things I think we should focus on. You can't focus on everything, right? There's always going to be more than you can do. And so you take the first stab at saying, okay, given this framework, which is Pinterest as a company, um, and we're trying to inspire people to do things in real life, we're not that interested in keeping them on the platform. We want you to go bake the cookies. Like we don't want Mm. you to just save the cookie recipes, Right. right? So then that's going to dictate you know, my takeaways, which is, hey, okay, here are the here are the areas that I think we should focus on. Highlight the recipe, right? Don't give me the whole narrative. Exactly. Or, you know, um, I don't think we need to work on an Alexa integration right now because that's not essential for most people in the country. Mm-hmm. They're not using it that way, right? Or I do think we need to lean into that because of X, Y, Z. So, you know, those are, it's, you're sort of, you're synthesizing these insights and using your understanding of the company and the product and the opportunity to prioritize recommendations, which, you know, once you do that, there's a whole other phase, which is the negotiation phase with your with your team where you go back and forth and decide, you know, do we want to do that? If so, how and when? Well, that was my next question. I think, and this is probably a little bit of projection from my own time in leadership, but sometimes I'm afraid to ask people what they think because I'm afraid it's going to take me off mission. How do you sort out the feedback, the raw feedback you're getting, which is probably a mixture of great ideas and bad ideas? Um, and how you how do you decide? How do you go through that filter process about what to pay attention to and what to ignore? I think step one is really figuring out your, we call it study design, but essentially what is the data you're going to be gathering? Who is it from? There's this idea of garbage in, garbage out. So if you... Mm-hmm. You know, if I had done that study and only visited houses in San Francisco, I would have gotten very, very different insights 
than what I ended up doing, which was I flew to Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I, I went to the Midwest and I got that perspective as a counter to the perspective that we already had in San Francisco. Um, and there were many reasons to do that, right? But so the first thing is you really have to make sure that you're talking to the right people and that you're gathering the right data because if you're, it's called your sample, if your sample is skewed, if your sample is biased, well, then so is your data, <laughs> right? Well, and that's interesting because a Louisiana kitchen is very different than maybe a Midwest kitchen is different than a Boston kitchen is different than a California kitchen, right? So how do you decide? Because I'm sure there are Pinterest users in every state. Let's break that down. How do, how do you figure that out? Yeah. So, you know, part of it is, um, you know, we did go broad with the diary studies. So that was mm. across the board national. So we had a national view from there. Um, part of it is also figuring out, okay, who is my sort of like ideal customer or or who is my, um, you know, another way to think about it is who's my most loyal customer or who is, you know, using this set of features the most. There's different ways that you can kind of segment and then decide, you know, I'm going to get the most bang for my buck by talking to people who really love food as opposed to talking to people who, you know, occasionally look at food things, but like they really love fashion is is the thing that Mm -hmm. they love the most, right? So part of it is just being strategic about, okay, you can talk to everybody and that'll give you one view. But then also the area that you're trying to really move the needle on, well, that's the area that, you know, you need to make sure that the people you're talking to are either invested in that because they're going to be most enthusiastic about it or open to it, Um, you know, but and this is one of the big challenges, I think, with running any research study is you have to get that recruit right, because if not, the data is useless. Okay, that's good. But um, no, that that's super helpful for me because I've always been a little bit wary of just asking everybody what they think. But I think, you know, narrowing your target a little bit, the people you're trying to reach, the customer you're trying to keep or the customer you're trying to attract, that makes a lot of sense. And then I love the like it seems to be a best practice, Jimena, from a lot of CEOs, particularly I've, this is not statistical, but a lot of female CEOs will spend time on the line, spend time. You listen to Sarah Blakely. A lot of male CEOs often are sitting behind a desk somewhere in meetings and boardrooms. But I noticed that as a tendency, it's not, this is just anecdotal, but like some of the very best will go out into the field and will be will spend their time listening as much as directing. And that's kind of what your book's about. It's about listening, right? You dedicated your book, Listen Like You Mean It, to your parents. What did you learn from your parents about meaning, about listening rather? So I grew up, I'm one of uh, four girls. So we had a, a lively, you know, active household. There was always something going on between the four of us. And I remember, you know, I think, I think some people could find that chaotic to a certain degree of like, oh, there's, you know, there's, it's, there's never any space for me to, you know, have time to myself or, um, you know, just be alone or whatever it may be. But I remember really loving it so much so that when I went to college, I requested my freshman year, I wanted to be in a suite. I did not want a single. I was like, I don't know what will happen if I have (laughs) my own, my own place. So I really loved it. And I think that, you know, it, it probably, it would have been really easy for me to feel um, unheard or ignored or left out in that environment when there is so much happening. Like that could have been an outcome. Um, and I and I really credit my parents with this is I never felt that way. I always felt like, yeah, there was always a lot going on and we were all to some degree distracted at any given moment. But when you sat down with them and, you know, needed to connect with them. They were there and they were present mm-hmm. and, and like any of those concerns just sort of like washed away. And I think it's because they were really good at making, making space, even in a crowded, <laughs> you know, household, making space for each of us um, and, and really deeply listening to whatever it was that was on our minds. Hmm. What are some of the listening mistakes you see people make? I think the biggest one is that we often think that we're listening when when we're not. Um, 
many times we think, okay, we're here with the other person, you know, I'm I'm picking up what they're putting down, but instead of really deeply listening, we are at the same time winding up a response. So we're getting ready to say something. We've got a question that we want to ask and follow up with, or we have a brilliant idea that we are just so excited to share. Um, or we think that what the other person is saying is boring and we want to change the subject, right? There's there's a lot of reasons, but often in that process of, you know, queuing up our response, that means we're not listening anymore. We are listening to our own inner monologue as opposed to what the other person is saying. So I think that's a really big one. Can you train that out of yourself? Because I was reading that and as you're describing that, I'm like, yeah, that's me. And I'm trying to get a lot better at listening, but like sometimes it's really hard not to have the next question or to change the subject. So like, is that something you can train yourself out of or what is that? It's, it's very common and it's, it's very human, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's sort of, a, yeah. it's, it's a, the sort of blessing and the curse of like having this amazing brain that can process things so quickly. Um, but you can work on that. I think, you know, ways to work on that are building awareness of it. So as mm. your thoughts come into the picture, just labeling them as thoughts and saying, oh, you know, I'm noticing that I'm getting distracted here. I'm noticing that I want to chime in. Just noticing that and letting it go, right? That's a very meditative exercise. So building some mindfulness around it, um, I think is one thing that you can can do to sort of identify it, see it. Self-awareness. It yeah, right. yeah. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, oftentimes we we build up, you know, what we want to say next in part because there's a fear that if we don't say it right now, we're going to lose it, whatever it is, right? It's like, we want to hold on to this idea. We really want to share it. Um, and so it starts to crowd everything else out. But what you find when you start to let that go and just loosen the grip a little bit on that is that if it's really important, it's going to come back to you. Like that's the way your memory works is the really important things will come back. And so when you start to trust that process and let it do its thing, it becomes easier to say, oh, there's a thought that I'm holding on to. I don't need to hold on to that. If it's important, it's going to come back. And if not, it wasn't that important. So I can just be here now. Can we talk about interruptions? I, I have found myself, I have been on a multi-decade journey from learning how to not interrupt people. Because I always feel I have something to say. And honestly, it's a child 450 episodes into this podcast. I'm trying to get better at not interrupting. What is the problem with interruption and how do you get over it? The big problem with interrupting is that you lose out on what the other person was going to say. Some people will never recover from being interrupted. You interrupt them and, and that's it. Wherever their train of thought was going, it's been shut down. Um, or they're, they may be unwilling to go back or they may just forget. But so I think the biggest risk is that, especially if you're trying to get to know someone um, or understand them better, you kind of had an in and now that door is closed. So I think one thing that you can try when it comes to interrupting, and I can really relate also to what you said of trying to work on this because this is my sort of Achilles heel, um, being patient in that way. Um, but one thing you can do is just to count to 10, you know, in your head, just wait it out um, and think about what can I, what can I glean through observation rather than interrupting? Like when I was talking about those cook-alongs with you earlier, to chime in and ask, oh, why'd you, why did you use that pasta box recipe? Mm. Or, oh, you know, why did you pull out your iPad? What, what, what for? Right. But if I had done that, I would have stopped them from sharing either verbally or non-verbally just through their actions and behaviors from sharing with me, you know, what their actual routine and process was. And I actually, I might've made them nervous by asking them that, by interrupting in that way. And so I think we sometimes don't realize that when we interrupt, we we lose out on what can come next. And we can also make the other person uncomfortable in some way, especially if there are cultural differences, right? In terms of, you know, you and I might think interrupting is a sign of enthusiasm. We're so excited. We want to just chime in. And someone else might feel really disrespected by that and be like, wow, I, I, I thought we had a different relationship. I'm not sure what's going on here. 
A recurring question on my podcast, probably because it's an observation and a bit of a pet peeve, is uh, my perception is that we're not as good at listening to each other as we were perhaps 10 or 20 years ago, that a lot of dialogue isn't really dialogue. It's me telling you what I think. It's my download. There's no question. There's no interaction. Then you tell me what you think. Again, no question, no interaction, just a, a dump. Have you seen that? Is that is that something you've identified? Like, is the art of conversation dying? I'm curious for your take on that. I think it's certainly under strain, um, <laughs> given given a lot. You know, I think um, I, I I don't love the argument of like technology is destroying everything, right? <laughs> like, yeah, like sure. this is all technology's fault. Um, I actually think that the challenges that we have with listening have been there for a long time. Technology maybe exacerbates some of those or gives us new ways to undermine our listening skills. Mm. Um, but it's it's a pretty, I mean, a lot of what we're talking about here, they're pretty human instincts, right? Of like interrupting or winding up to say what you want to say next or you wanting to share a story, you know, and not being able to, to wait somebody else's story out. Like those are very human impulses. Um, I think that technology has certainly, you know, reinforced those impulses to a certain degree. Um, and it has for sure changed how we communicate with each other. Um, and, you know, there's research that even just having a phone out on the table while we're having a conversation decreases your ability to be empathetic, right? So certainly all of that is is part of the picture. Um, but I think because there is such this like human element to it, that's actually what gives me hope that, you know, Listening is under strain, but we kind of have what we need in order to regain it. We just have to do a little bit of that inward self-reflection, thinking of what we're trying to do, what we're trying to get out of these relationships, but some intentionality behind it. Um, and that's what, you know, I'm hoping to do with the book is sort of resurface this lost art that I think many of us can intuitively connect with. We just kind of need a little bit of a nudge. Yeah, in leading people, you pointed out something I found really helpful. That and and I work with some pollsters on some projects on a pretty close basis. And one of the problems is self-reporting. So I say, say I'm in great shape, but I can't really run a mile. I say, oh, I eat super healthy, and you know, as soon as we're done this call, open a bag of Doritos. But though they don't really count, right? So um, I drink one glass of wine, but it's actually three. You give some examples in the book. Um, how do you get through that to really listen well enough? And, and the way this shows up in leadership is, you know, how are you doing today, Jimena? And you're like, I'm great. Meanwhile, you're crumbling inside. And I'm like, no, Jimena's great. She's awesome. Like, let's move on, right? How do you learn to train yourself so that you can actually see how people are really doing? Well, I think you you started talking about it just now in terms of seeing how people are really doing. So it's not mm. just hearing what they're saying, but it's observing them as well. Okay. Right. So you're bringing in the listening elements of, um, you know, trying to listen for not just the literal what's being said, but also the subtext, the meaning, maybe what's not being said. That's something to pay attention to. Um, the emotion behind what what is being shared. You're, you're listening to all those things, but then you're also observing and you're paying attention to um, what is the tone of voice? What is the pitch or pacing that is happening as this person is communicating. What is their posture like? You know, these nonverbal gestures can tell us a lot about a person and how they're really feeling. So if they're like, yeah, yeah, everything's fine, but they won't make eye contact with you. Okay, what might that mean? Or if someone is, you know, you're talking about pairing a, a set of teammates on a project and you're like, yeah, this is gonna be so good. It's gonna be such a fun collaboration for you. And you notice that they start to kind of pull away at, from the table, right? Or lean back or start to speak really slowly or really quickly, right? If there's some sort of shift there, those are all cues that there might be more that needs to be said. So when you see that kind of, I don't know what you call it, cognitive dissonance, but that disconnect between what people are saying and what you think might be happening, what are some good ways to get under that without being like, are you lying to me? Like, what, what do you, how do you, like, you know, the three glasses of wine is a great idea. Someone, let's say you're a doctor or whatever, and you're like, 
really one glass of wine and, you know, but you kind of suspect it's three because you've run the blood work and everything like that. Like, how do you, a lot of people are very afraid to sort of challenge the surface answers. So any strategies on how to do that? Yeah, I think, I think there's a few. One, you know, in, in the case of something like um, lying to your doctor or misrepresenting the truth to your doctor, I think this is why what you'll probably find is that a lot of doctors look at your routine more broadly. So they ask about, you know, your exercise, your diet, all of these other things that it's not specifically about like, hey, I think you're lying about the glass of wine. Let's go back to that. It's like, okay, like, tell me how, like, how does this fit into everything else that you do? And what's a normal day look like for you? Okay. And is this, you know, what kinds of settings does this occur in? That kind of thing, right? They go a little bit broader, frankly, um, in part, I think, to not push us away or make us feel um, caught in any way. Mm. I think in a, you know, in a work setting, when you're trying to suss that out, um, you know, going, going bigger certainly helps, but also you can sometimes sense, um, when someone has something more to say, and they might give you little openings if you're paying attention. Um, and so I like to follow up on those with really gentle nudges, um, because I don't want to push anyone too far, but those gentle nudges sound like, tell me more about that. You know, if someone says, oh yeah, you know, yeah, I think I could work with that person. Um, yeah, I think so. Where they're kind of like, mm, mm, convincing themselves in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'd be like, Oh, say more, you know, just, just tell me more about that. Or, um, if someone says, well, you know, I think that'll be an interesting challenge, but I'm up for it. Right. And you could just say, Oh, and that's because dot, dot, dot. You're just, you're just teeing them up to say, well, because blah, 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 blah. Right. And so they're really, they're very small nudges. Um, and, and that's why they're effective is because you're just, you're cracking the door open just a little bit and letting them kind of go at their own pace by asking questions like, Oh, what else? Or tell me more. Yeah. What are the advantages to better listening? Like for a leader who is like, okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. But what is the payoff? Well, I think the payoff is you're building much better relationships. You're collaborating better. I think you're able to align more quickly um, on goals. Um, And ultimately, you're going to produce better work, right? If you know how someone, um, if you know what is someone is motivated by, right? If you if you're managing somebody and you know, oh, they're really motivated by um, public recognition, they actually don't care that much about money, what whatever it may be, right? That's super useful information for you as a leader to figure out. Okay, how do I set them up with the right opportunities, sure. help them grow, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same idea. It's just that you're doing it in a way where you're understanding. Well, what makes this person tick? Like. I am, through listening, able to learn more about you as an individual or about this group and their group dynamics. And the more I can spot up front, the the more effective our one-on-ones are going to be, our team projects are going to be, um, the more belonging people are going to feel within your organization, which I think is not to be underestimated. Um, so I just think it's, it's a sort of quiet superpower that it really, really boosts your relationships in a way that just can open up so much in the workplace and Mm -hmm. at home. So sometimes you get into a conversation, you feel like you're listening, but it stayed fairly shallow. How, How do you have deeper conversations? What are some keys? And this is true in life, but also in leadership. I love deep conversations. Like they're my favorite ones. So how do you go there? I think part of it is reframing or revising some of the questions that we we ask. So sometimes we think that we're asking good questions that are going to lead to a deeper conversation, but they're actually not that great. And so we often ask questions that are leading in some way where we kind of want to hear a certain thing. And so we lead someone to give us a certain answer or they're biased in some way. Um, and if we can shift our questions to be more open-ended, that makes a big difference. So even, you know, let's say you're you're asking someone hey are are you worried about that big deadline coming up for that project that you're working on um in that question you've baked in the idea 
intentionally or not, you've baked in the idea that this person has reason to be worried (laughs) about this big deadline, right? Like that either the project is so big, they should be worried, or they're running out of time, they should be worried, or they're in over their heads, they should be worried, right? Like, and the other person, you know, maybe is going to read into that and be like, whoa, should I be worried? (laughs) Or even if they don't, you know, which I think is the best case scenario is they don't really hear all the subtext. um, They give you a yes or no answer. You say, no, I'm not worried. Or yeah, I'm kind of worried, right? Um, If we ask questions instead of starting with, you know, are or is or do, if we shift those questions to beginning with how or what, so how are you feeling about that deadline coming up? What do you think about that? much more open-ended? It's much more open-ended. And so then you give the other person the opportunity to step in and say, well, I'm a little bit nervous because of X, Y, Z, but overall I'm feeling okay about it, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and that, that changes the nature of your conversations when you're able to shift your questions in that way. How does silence play a role in a conversation? Silence is crucial in conversation, but we are so uncomfortable with it that we often don't let it shine and do what it needs to do. So silence in conversation, I think many of us have have the reaction of, oh my gosh, I've bored the other person. Like they have Mm -hmm. nothing to say in response or I've alienated them in some way. Um, or we just have no chemistry, like, you know, oh, it's going to be terrible reporting to this person. They don't get me what, you know, you can go a lot of places with silence. Um, but silence doesn't have to have that sort of negative connotation. And in fact, I think there's a lot of good that comes from silence, which is that you give people the space to process, to think, to gear up for sharing something, especially if especially if you're trying to go deep, right? Sometimes people have heard your question and they're still working on it or they've heard, you know, your assessment of a situation and they're pondering that or th- and they're thinking about, well, how am I going to respond? <laughs> like, you know, how do I share my opinion? And so I think we really need to be a little more comfortable with this idea of silence and let it work for us rather than against us because often what happens is at at the age of silence there's an insight <laughs> there's something really valuable to learn but because we get so uncomfortable we shift gears we change the topic we end the conversation mm-hmm. we often we don't we don't get there because we are trying to ease our own discomfort rather than just saying oh this is a little awkward but i think there might be more here to say hmm Yeah, that's really true. I find even in interviewing, sometimes it looks like a guest will be ramping down with the question. I'll just kind of leave it there. And then they drop something that's pure gold. I'm trying to implement that more and more in my life. Okay, so we're listening. We're not interrupting. We're allowing silence to happen. We're letting the other person speak. How do you not end up in a open, rambling conversation that goes nowhere? Like, can you guide it? Are there, is it just, no, I let the other person drive the bus, even if it goes off a cliff? Like, what do you, what do you do with that? You can definitely drive. Um, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm also thinking of, you know, when we do research sessions that are 60 minutes long, if I let the other participants just lead the way. Yeah, we might never get the answers that we're looking for. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so yes, there you can definitely guide the conversation. Part of, you know, making sure that you're not just kind of ping-ponging at the surface and going all over the place, part of it goes back to some of those encouraging questions that I was mentioning earlier, where if there is an area that you want to go deeper on, that's that's the thing that you say, oh, say more about that, right? You can mm-hmm. you can let the other stuff yeah. go, right? But you pinpoint that and say, that's where I'm going to go a little bit deeper. So part of it is that. I think the other part, um, and I think this is a little bit, sometimes we feel uncomfortable redirecting, but it can be really valuable. Part of it is acknowledging what the other person has said and then redirecting. So, you know, especially in, let's say, a meeting or a business setting where you have a set amount of time 
you need to, you know, come to some sort of agreement or align on next steps, afford to just be all over the place open-ended. And so if someone is taking you off track, you can say like, that's a really interesting perspective. I want to come back to XYZ now, or thanks for your input there. What do other people have to say about this topic? Right. And so I think the, the sort of like finesse there is you're, you're not ignoring someone in conversation. You're saying, huh, okay. It's interesting that you feel X or I I hear your perspective, right? You're giving them some way of saying like, yes, I hear you. I'm not ignoring you. And here's where we need to go. Right. Right. How, how do you end a conversation? How do you know when a conversation's over? Because, uh, you know, your book made me ask a lot of questions. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I probably cut that off too early. Or it's like, wow, that's a dead horse. You know, like we could have left that a while ago. Are there any clues for like, okay, we're, we're finished here other than, you know, Hey, we're out of time. Right. Which is some meetings, but if you just got a natural open conversation in life or in leadership, when do you know it's kind of coming to a close? Part of that is when you start to hear repetition, either in language or, um, you know, the same idea being repeated multiple ways. That's a sign that you've probably covered this ground ground already. It's kind of an interesting sign because it tells you that the other person thinks something is unfinished. And so maybe you have to figure out what that is, right? right. There might be something there. Or maybe they are just a verbal processor and, like, they're just going to keep going there. And, and, and it's fine for you to say, I think we've – I think we've kind of covered everything we needed to tackle. Let's let's try and pause here. And why don't you come back to me with next step after you've thought, you know, through that more since we've talked about it already, basically. Right. So repetition is definitely one to keep an eye out for. Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad that you talked about all the other things before you started to go into conflict because the books on conversation often are around conflict and how to have good conflict. So I think a lot of people have training in that. But what are your tips on hard or conflicted conversations for people? I think there's there's things that you can do at the beginning of the conversation, before, during, after. So, you know, it depends on the topic, but I would at least think about it sequentially of like, what do I need to do to prepare? What do I need to do during? And what potentially do I need to do afterwards? Hmm. One of the things I think that you can do to prepare especially if there's some sort of power dynamic in play, like let's say it's a leader in their direct report, something like that, um, is to do what you can to reframe the conversation that's going to come um, so that it's less tense and and conflict-filled already, (laughs) right? It could just be a performance review, right? Where it's just, you know, there is a power dynamic there. But so if you're in that case, then, you know, as the leader, you can, try to even things out by modeling vulnerability. And that's saying things like, you know, um, when I was in your experience, like I, I had, I had that challenge too, Mm -hmm. or just reminding yourself that like, what does it feel like when your boss evaluates you? Oh, you get a little nervous. Okay. I'm going to try and be extra kind with like my person today because I know what that feels like. Right. And if you're on the other side of that, then I think, um, reframing, you know, how you think of that other person less in terms of title, which I think we can all get hung up on and more as they're a person, right? Mm. This is not me having a one-on-one with the CEO who I'm super intimidated by. This is me having a one-on-one with someone who happens to be a CEO, but is a human first. And so therefore has flaws and just like me, right? Um, So I think that's part of it. I think also at the beginning of a, a conversation, setting an intention of, you know, and and I mean for yourself, but also with the other person and saying, hey, you know, this might get a little uncomfortable, this conversation that we're going to have. I want you to know that my intention isn't to push or prod. My intention is really to understand you. And so that's that's what we're here for, right? And so having that shared intention, I think, can also diffuse some of that tension of like, ooh, what am I getting myself into? And then the last thing that I'll mention during the conversation is I think that it's really helpful to know what are your personal, I call them hotspots. So what are those sensitive areas that you are likely to be activated by? Some of those are really obvious. Some of those are like, we feel super strongly about 
politics or religion or whatever it may be and hard conversation with this person because we don't see eye to eye. Some of those are not obvious at all. And it's like, you know, talking about our parents or talking about like, you know, oh, we're, we're having a first day of school moment and we moved around a lot as a kid. Right. So it's being aware of those and then recognizing in the moment, like, oh, you know what? I'm feeling a little bit of tightness in, in my throat or my heart is starting to race or I'm, I'm actually sweating a little bit. Like I'm, I'm feeling uncomfortable and recognizing that in the moment so that you can say, I think I'm getting a little bit, I'm actually having trouble hearing you because I'm having an emotional response to what's being said right now. Um, Can we take a break? Is it okay if we take a break? You know, that I think is something that you can share, particularly if you have a strong relationship. If you don't have a strong relationship, maybe you're noticing it and you just say, you know, I think I could use a water break or should we do a bio break? Right. Like most people are not going to be like, no, you cannot take a two minute restroom break. Right. They're going to be like, oh yeah, of course. Right. And so you can at least get that break to recenter yourself or to say, you know what? I realized that like, this is too much for me right now. I need to hit pause and let's come back to it. The other thing I thought was so helpful in your framework is you talk about we all have natural limits. We are not robots, right? And there are some leaders listening who have eight hours of meetings a day, uh, you know, or four meetings in a row, that kind of thing where it's people, people, people. Uh, What is the role of rest, recovery, and relaxation in the role of great listening? It's so, so important. And I think culturally, for many reasons, we... We don't really pay that much attention to rest and (laughs) relaxation, Um, but it's really important because if you charge through and if you say, you know what, I'm tired, but I've got four more one-on-ones today and I just need to crush them. I need to get through them and then go home. What's probably going to happen is they're not going to be very good one-on-ones because you're really tired and realistically, you're kind of only half there. You're getting a fraction of what's being said and what's not being said. And as a leader, your time is really precious. So you kind of can't afford to be half there and get half of the data, half of the information during these conversations. So it's really important to know your limits, to know about yourself. You know what? I'm, I can do three back-to-back one-on-ones and then I'm toast and then I, I need a break. Or I can do four and then I'm, and then I'm done, you know, but it's important yeah. to know what those limits are so that you can be intentional and thoughtful about how you design your day because it's going to make you a much better listener and more effective in that relationship. On the other hand, I know that there are people who are listening who are going to be like, yeah, but I don't control my day. <laughs> like, Right. What would you say to them? It's like I'm in you know, meetings and by four o'clock I have toothpicks in my eyes. I can't even see anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I I totally get that. I do think if that's your situation, part of it is finding ways to micro rest. So you're not taking that like, you know, you don't have like three hours in the middle of the day where you're doing your deep work and, and what have you, but you can, you can take two minutes in between one-on-ones for yourself. Like that is a thing that you can do. Just take two minutes do some deep breathing, close your eyes, listen to something calming, calming, remind yourself that like everything you heard in the previous one-on-one, that's where it belongs. You don't have to carry it into the next one-on-one and, you know, try and start fresh. Those micro moments of rest, it's not ideal, but that can help you get through those periods and help you be more effective in the moment. Yeah, it's such practical advice. I find the older I get and the more I know myself, the more I realize, well, I have real limits. Like I have two podcasts in me a day at the most because this takes a lot of energy to like really listen, be engaged, not just thinking about my next question. So after this one, I'm going to have a big old nap and then I'll have some food, right? Like there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, Jimena, this has been so helpful. Anything else you want to share? It is a great book. It's the best book on listening I've ever read. It's long too. Like it's not like a 50 page read. So if you want to really study this, and I was telling you, I interviewed Greg McEwen from Essentialism and Effortless. And you know, he says listening is a superpower, that it can 10 X your influence. So I, I couldn't agree more. And we're all in a culture where very few people feel heard. So anything else you want to share with us as we wrap up today? 
I think the only thing that I would add is just, you know, I think a lot of people think about listening as a skill that you either have it or you don't, like someone is naturally a good listener or not. And I really want to debunk that and say that there are tactical things that you can do to improve your listening skills. And that the number one thing, like if you take nothing else away from this conversation, the number one thing I would say is building self-awareness about yourself as a listener and what stops you from listening, whether those are distractions or topics or some or or people <laughs> that you find it harder to listen to, that's worth paying attention to. And that's that's really step one for starting to reclaim and rebuild. Wow. Well, tell us about the book and where people can find you. Yeah. So the book is called Listen Like You Mean It. Um, and it's available on my website, which is kind of my hub. So if you want to follow me on social and my newsletter and all that good stuff, and that's himenavanguichea.com. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. Jimena, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that totally was a fresh take on listening. Like, can you imagine going into a kitchen and just watching how people behave and, and then going back and like redesigning the product? I, I think that's brilliant. And there's a whole lot more. We have it for you in the show notes. You can find all of that over at kerrynewhoff.com slash episode 432. I have a near final what I'm thinking about segment coming up and I'm going to talk about what I'm learning about listening, but we're switching it up in August starting next month, which is right around the corner. We're going to begin a brand new segment called Ask Me Anything About Productivity. I will be taking questions from you and answering them on the show. So if you have productivity questions, head on over to kerrynewhoff.com slash podcast, click on the start recording button, just scroll down and then ask me a question about productivity. What are you struggling with? Time management, energy management, uh, having other people hijack your priorities, being fully present at home, getting stuff done at work. Like, what is it about productivity? I will be coaching you starting in August. And next episode, we have Alan George. For a decade, he led Church Online for Life Church and saw it grow to one of the largest online churches in the world. We go all over the place with that. If you subscribe, you'll get it automatically. And here's an excerpt from the next episode. My mom, um, for many years, lived in India. She's here in the U.S. now. But for example, if she would call and say, you know, on FaceTime video or something, say, hey, I want to talk to the grandkids, put the kids on, on the phone. If I were to tell my mom, mom, I know you miss the grandkids, but you won't have the best experience through a FaceTime video call. Let's wait for six months until you're here in person, and then you can talk to them. She would slap me through the phone. I mean, that's just how <laughs> she is. It's like, get the kids on the phone. And so that really, a lot of things that I was experiencing with regards to community, we have family that lives all over the world. Would I just say, hey, online is not the best, and so I'm not going to engage in community? No, I'm going to leverage every tool and every platform there is to connect with the people that I love and connect with the people that God's called me to connect with. And so that's how I've, I, I stopped trying to go, is this better? Is this the same? It's different. Let's just embrace it and understand it for the technology it is, and let's leverage it the way we can. Okay, also coming up, we've got Louis Giglio. Uh, who's coming back? Horst Schultze, founder of the Ritz-Carlton, Chris McChesney from the 4DX, Kendra Adachi, the lazy genius, uh, David Allen from Getting Things Done, Jessica Jackley, the founder of Kiva, and so many other things. Very excited for this season for you. And now it's time for what I'm thinking about. And I am thinking about listening and I got to get better at that. Um, it's been a lifelong journey for me. I'm a talker by nature, a filler in of all gaps by nature. And so uh, I get asked all the time now about how I go about interviewing. And one of the things I've, I've learned is that to me, to my mind, the best interviews are when I listen the best. So I prep, I'll read a book or, you know, quickly read a book to get ready uh, to interview a guest, I'll, I'll search their bio, I'll do lots of research, uh, and I will pre-write some questions and share that with them in advance. But often in these interviews, I don't even use the questions that I prepared because what I'm doing, I'll get us started and then I'll just listen. And if I'm really listening well, I know 99% of you watch via audio or listen via audio, I should say. We do have a YouTube channel but like even before we started a YouTube channel, I always did the interviews either by video or in person wherever possible. There's only a handful that were audio only. And I do that because I'm a better interviewer when I can see the person. And I want to pay attention to their body language. I want to see what is unspoken. I want to see if they get uncomfortable or if I sense that, hey, there's something else there. And then I do what I call following the curiosity trail. 
What I try to resist, unless I'm doing a round table or I got a really good friend on and it's a dialogue, is I try to resist inserting my own opinions. I try not to like, oh yeah, that's exactly what we did. You know, that's what I do in my company. That happens a lot in interviewing. And, you know, it's very natural and very human to want to talk about yourself. But I find the better interviews is when I let the guest have the microphone, when they do 95% of the talking. If I talk too much, it's not as good an interview. And that really allows people to be heard, um, often in a way that they don't get heard elsewhere. A lot of people who do this for a living, if you get interviewed you know, by the New York Times or, or on CNBC or on Fox News or something like that, here's what happens. You have like three minutes to make your point. Well, here you've got an hour or 90 minutes to make your point. And often stuff will come out that you don't hear elsewhere. So give them time, really pay attention to their body language. And then the other thing I find is uh, I will go down the curiosity trail by saying things like, tell me more, or hmm, what did that feel like? Or is there anything else there? Questions like that. And that really draws people out. And that's often where the gold is. And um, you've got to be curious. Now, the other thing I would say is, is really helpful if you want to be a better listener is you have to get comfortable with silence. And for years, I was the person like the second that there was silence, I would try to fill it in with words. And somewhere probably at year three of doing this podcast, I learned, Carrie, just shut up. Just shut up. Don't say anything. Be quiet. And sometimes there's an awkward pause. We don't edit them out. And the guest will then kind of pick up on, oh, you want me to keep going? And it's like, yeah, yeah. And then they will tell you something. And again, that's often where the gold is. So I am learning by being quiet that I become a better interviewer. I, I, I often joke with friends. It's like, it's funny that I'm best known for the format in which I speak the least. Like I'm a public speaker. That's what I do, right? But what am I known for? Podcasting. And it's where I actually talk the least during the interviews, which is, which is okay. That's fine. Um, I, I love being an interviewer. Now, what I need to do and what I'm working on right now is to translate that into real life at a dinner party. Be more interested in the other person than you are in yourself. Uh, try not to insert your own opinion into everything. And that is a much harder discipline. But as you've heard me say, if you're a longtime listener, I am concerned that the art of conversation is dying. And that basically conversation these days is people throwing status updates at each other. And it's not particularly helpful. You know, like we do on social media, hey, did this today. And then someone else says, oh, I did this today. And blah, blah, blah. you know, like, what is that? That's not a conversation. And so I really want to get better. We're heading into the peak of summer. By the time you hear this, I will have finished a month off, just be winding down a month off. And I hope in this month off where I'm connecting with people, you know, we're seeing people again socially, uh, thanks to the end of the pandemic or the near end of the pandemic, or at least being in this phase of whatever we're in, uh, I want to get much better by the time you listen to this at listening to other people in real life, not just on this podcast. In addition to that, ah, you picked up a lot of stuff from Jimena along the way as well. Hey, we're back next time with a fresh episode. I hope this helps. Hey, make sure you check out kerryneuhoff.com slash podcast. Leave me a question about productivity, time management, energy management, priority management, whatever. Uh, we got a lot of great stuff on productivity coming because I got my new book coming out, At Your Best, which is all about getting time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. We have a ton of free stuff for you too coming out with that book launch including some coaching. So let me coach you. kerryneuhoff.com slash podcast. Thanks for leaving ratings and reviews. Really appreciate you. We'll catch you next time. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.